Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. They lived among, he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of this man, you you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. And he gave them permission, and the unclean spirit came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the, the country, and people came to see what it was that happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had a legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region as he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed by the demons begged him that he might be with him. But he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are in chapter 5, and and as we said last week, we're at a turning point in this story uh, as we continue to walk through the book of Mark in our series titled Following Jesus. And and if you have been following along, you will notice that that there have been several turning points in this story that continue to heighten the drama and continue to push the story toward the inevitable climax, which is the cross, which, by the way, is exactly what we're talking about next week, Easter Sunday. But everything in the book of Mark is moving toward the cross. As, as, as it's been said, that the gospel of Mark really is a, is a passion narrative with an extended introduction. The story moves really, really quickly to the cross of Christ. And so naturally, we see this momentum build in this story as we reach these turning points like we have in this section today. This section is a turning point because Jesus is now revealing more of himself to his disciples. As we saw last week, even his followers who, be, who began to believe in him and were willing to follow where he went really didn't fully understand who Jesus is. The picture that they had in their minds of, of what they thought Jesus was was really an adequate 
an inadequate picture. Right? Their assumptions really fell short. And, and so in this section, Jesus, what he does is he begins to pull the veil back a little more and revealing a little more of himself so that they can know and, and, and grow in their understanding of who Jesus is. And with that, right, we have this emerging picture of Christ in this story. What we've, what we've learned so far about Jesus is that, number one, Jesus is one of us. Right? That Jesus was truly man. He needed sleep. He needed to eat. He was limited by time and space. He even, even was baptized in the Jordan River to identify himself with the sinners who were there repenting of their sins. He needed not to repent, but he identified himself with us. And so he is one of us. But we also see in this story that he is the Son of God, that he is truly God in the flesh. Mark declares from the very opening verse that Jesus is the divine Son of God. And as such, he is sovereign and in control. It is he that changes the hearts of men. But we also see that he is, he is very compassionate. And he is willing to help. And he is a friend of, of the worst kinds of sinners. And not only is he that, right? And not only is he this miracle worker, right? But he is also a preacher, Right? He goes around and proclaims the truth all over the region of Galilee, calling people to repent and believe the gospel. And people begin to believe in him. Right? But, but, but they don't really fully, completely comprehend and understand who he is. But now we're at this turning point, and this picture of Christ is about to get a little bit more clear, a little bit more in focus. Because Jesus, in this next phase of his ministry, he's not going to just do miracles. He's going to do like next level kind of miracles. As if healing people of their diseases and their infirmities was not enough. As if casting out a demon wasn't enough. He's now going to perform mind-blowing kinds of miracles that will put on display the awesome power of Jesus Christ. And number two, it will also demonstrate the insufficiency of the disciples' faith and then their knowledge that they have and help them to embrace who he really is. But through these miracles, a clear picture is going to begin to emerge. In fact, last week, what we saw was Jesus calmed the storm, right? Simply by speaking the word. His followers, right? He saved them from real harm. And this is the picture of Jesus as the Savior, right? Jesus is the great Savior. There's not a storm in your life that he can't help you overcome. But ultimately, from the coming storm is the one that he, need, that he is going to save you. The coming storm of God's judgment and his wrath the great and terrible storm Jesus will deliver you through. And then last week we see that Jesus is free. Excuse me, Jesus frees a man. Uh, excuse me. This week we're going to see that Jesus is going to free a man from, uh, from demon possession. And not from just one demon, but an entire legion of demons. And this is a picture of Jesus, the liberator. Right? He has the power to completely liberate us, and the power, he has power over the enemy, and he has power over sin and death. Jesus is the one who sets us free. And then after Easter, what we will see is Jesus will heal a woman of an incurable disease. This is a picture of Jesus as the all-powerful healer. There's nothing that Jesus cannot heal us from, and ultimately he's going to heal us from our greatest affliction, which is the disease of our sin. And then in the same story, we will see Jesus raise up a young girl right, who had died, and he's going to raise her to new life, revealing the, the picture that Jesus is the author of life itself. Jesus is the great life giver. Right? 
And that Jesus has conquered death and has the power and the authority to give life. That is our hope. And what we see in this section then is this picture emerging of Jesus Christ is not just some miracle worker from Nazareth, but Jesus really is all that we're ever going to need. He is our all-sufficient Savior. Right? We sang that song this morning, right? You know, you're, you know, you're my all in all. Jesus is your everything. If you have Jesus, you have all that you will ever need. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to begin to look at this emerging picture, and we're going to look at Jesus, the liberator, who sets us free. So turn with me to Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And it reads, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. So uh, I'll tell you, if there's a hard word in, in the, the text to read, is that one. Man, I keep messing that one up. It's actually Gerasenes. Now, you look at that and you go, how do you get Gerasenes? Like, I don't know. I just, just that's, well, I've heard several people pronounce it that way. So we're going to go with that, all right? Gerasenes. And, and if you'll remember, Jesus had spent a long day ministering to a very huge crowd of people, beginning with casting out a demon from a blind and a mute man. And then the Pharisees then immediately said, well, you're doing that by the power of the devil, and Jesus rebukes them. And then it was also the same day that Jesus' family show up, and they try to take take him captive because they think he's crazy. And then Jesus then moves outside, right, and continues to be followed around by this crowd. So he gets into a boat, and then he preaches to the crowd and tells several parables about the kingdom of God. And then when evening finally comes, Jesus is wiped out, and he tells us to his disciples, let's go across the lake so that Jesus can get away from the crowd and begin to get a little bit of rest. And as we remember, Jesus fell asleep really quickly as they made their way across the lake, and then a sudden life-threatening storm arose, and his disciples, fearing for their lives, woke Jesus up, and he said, peace be still, and he calmed the storm. And then after that, they continue um, on their way to the east side of the lake, known as this place called uh, Gerasenes, but it's also known as, a, as the Decapolis, which is a region called uh, the Ten Cities. That's what the Decapolis means, which was a predominantly Gentile area. That's why there's so many pigs here, by the way. All right? It's a predominantly Gentile area. And, when, and it says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. Now, Luke's gospel says that this man was demon-possessed. Right? Well, well, notice how Mark describes this demon-possessed man, because this is important, kind of a key to the story here. He describes this man you know, as, as, as one with an unclean spirit. And the reason why he says it that way is because that's what demons are. They are unclean spirits. They're defiled spirits. They are morally filthy, right? They are corrupt. They are polluted, right? They are riddled with sin, so to speak. They, are, they bring corruption and filth to those they inhabit. They are sinful, filthy, abominable creatures, right? And, and, and notice that this man, this, unclean, this man with the unclean spirit also lives among the tombs. He lived among dead people. And what you need to realize is that, that this is not the picture that we tend to think of when we say, when we think of someone living among the tombs. I don't know about you, but every time I read this text, I always thought of a guy living in a graveyard, right? Because that's what we think about, right? Because we're Americans and that's how we kind of associate things, either graveyards or mausoleums or something like that. That is not the picture here. They did, this is, in the first century, there weren't things like, you know, 
you know, grave sites outside behind the church somewhere, these sectioned off areas where they had headstones and rows. No. In the first century, they buried their people not, not that way, but they put them in caves or in hollowed out spots in places on the, in the side of hills or mountains. If you think about Jesus in his tomb, right, how, how he, was, he was buried, right? It was in the garden tomb in a hillside with a stone over the entrance. And so this man basically lived in these burial caves, and, and, and lots of people who were outcasts did that because ultimately it provided shelter and nobody would really bother them there. But, but he's, he's living in these caves among dead bodies, which is fitting for someone who has an unclean spirit because tombs were considered unclean places. Because dead bodies, according to Jewish law, were unclean. That means you're not allowed to touch a dead body, otherwise you would become ceremonially unclean. And so this man is really like the epitome of uncleanness. He is thoroughly unclean. He's spiritually unclean because he's possessed by the demons. He's ritually unclean because he's had contact with the dead bodies. But he's also physically unclean because he is naked. In fact, Luke's gospel makes that clear. Uh, in his narrative, he writes, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons for a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had no, not lived in a house, but among the tombs. This man was not only demon-possessed, living among the tombs, but he was also completely naked. So this man was unclean in every possible way. He was gross and defiled in every possible way. Which means, if you're a Jewish, you would typically avoid him and not have contact with him. Because he was really considered unworthy. He was considered unlovable. In fact, Matthew's account uh, gives us a sense that he was that, that people avoided him altogether because he was even violent, right? That they were afraid to even get near him. People were terrified of him. And, and, and no one, it says, could even control him. Look what Mark says. It says, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. So just... If you would, just picture this, right? This wild-eyed, filthy, dirty, naked, demon-possessed man running around the countryside, right? Living among the dead, and no one can control him. No one can subdue him. No one can hold him down, not even for his own good. He is literally the epitome of out of control. And then it says, in night and day, among the tombs, and on the mountainside, he is always crying out, cutting himself with stones. Just picture that, right? This pathetic remnant of a man crying out. Now, and the Greek here literally means to be screaming continually, this unearthly scream, like the worst kind of like scary movie scream from, from, from an animal, right? Continually screaming and taking sharp stones, cutting himself. There's one commentator, Danny Aiken, believes that this man was cutting himself in order to commit suicide so he could finally have some relief from the constant torment that he was enduring at the hand of these demons. And, and, and so what a, what a helpless, hopeless, heart-wrenching picture this is. Right? A man who is thoroughly under the control, thoroughly under the control of the enemy, a man who's being physically and emotionally and spiritually tormented without end, a man who, who has no hope except simply to die. We need to look at this scenario here right? and, and see how, 
how heart-wrenching this is, but what we need to do is we need to realize that in this section, we, we can learn some important things about our enemy, the one who is cruel and who is seeking and hunting all of us. And the first thing that you need to realize is that the enemy is real. He is real. Right? Now, I, that might seem strange. You know, you might think, well, of course he's real. But the reality is we live in a world right now that believes that it's rational. We live in a world right now that believes that, that, it's, that it's empirical-minded, right? A world that, that really has no room for the supernatural, the least of which a devil. The fact is there are some people even who claim to be Christians, people who profess the name of Jesus Christ that don't believe that the devil is a real thing. They believe that the devil is fictitious, that he's just an element of, of, of Scripture that helps us to process evil and sin. That there's not a real literal Satan or, or Lucifer. That they're just literary devices in order employed by God to help explain the embodiment of evil. If you read the Bible, you'll realize that's not what the Bible says. Right? That's not what the Gospel of Mark says. From the very first chapter, Jesus is engaged in a spiritual battle with a very real devil and the forces of darkness. Over and over again, Jesus encounters demons, and what does he do? He casts them out of people. And not only that, he has personal interactions with them. He talks to them, right? asks their name, tells them, don't tell anybody about me. Shut your mouth. He personally interacts with the demons and speaks with them. He, he interacted it personally and spoke with the devil himself. He talked to them. So Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, Jesus himself believed that the enemy is real. Which means then, if he believes that he's real, then he's, he's real. That's right. Regardless of what our culture says, right? Regardless of what some fancy philosopher might say. There is a very real adversary, and he is continually on the hunt. And we need to understand this. The, and, and what we also need to understand is that the enemy is very hateful. Okay, He's the embodiment of hate. He hates us. He hates me. He hates you. Okay? If you're a person who lives in a world who hates to be hated by anybody, just understand, you're already hated. All right? He hates you. And the reason why he hates you and he hates me is because, because he hates God and we were created in the image of God. Do you understand that? The angels were not created in the image of God. There, no animals and no other creatures were created in the image of God. Only one creature has ever been created in the image of God, and that is mankind. Mankind was created as God's crowning achievement. We were created to be his image bearers in the world, and Satan despises and hates us for it because he hates God. Satan wants to annihilate the image of God in man. In fact, notice after uh, notice that Satan attempts to defile the image of God in man. That's why he makes him unclean. That's why this man, right, is inhabited by putrid, morally reprehensible, filthy demons. That's why he makes him live among the dead. That's why he continually exposes him to the, to the shame of his nakedness. Right? It's as if the devil is standing going, saying, see, look at your creature. Look at the one you've created. Look how vile he is. He seeks to defile the image of man in God. He also seeks to deface God's image in man. 
He seeks to make the image of God in man so twisted and so perverse that he can't even, that he can't even be recognized. I mean, I mean, this man is beginning to look less and less like a man than, and more and more like a wild animal. He's becoming twisted and broken, a version of himself. And we, we all know what that looks like. We, we, we have all known people in our lives who have thrown themselves headlong into their sin and people who have thrown themselves headlong into their addictions who, who when you look at them, people that we love and care about, have, they become unrecognizable. Right? That you look at them and their, their minds are not there anymore. They, they begin to act like wild animals. The enemy wants to deface the image of God in man and he wants to destroy it as well. Make no mistake, our enemy wants to he has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And he seeks to destroy the last vestige, vestige of, of, of God in mankind because he is a killer. Danny Aiken, uh, quoting uh, the, the, the uh, Apostle John, notes that the devil is a murderer from the beginning. He also points out that Peter adds, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for, for anyone he can devour. And he goes on to say, he goes, this was the plan of the devil had in mind for this poor demon-possessed soul. He was howling like a wild animal, cutting himself against the jagged rocks of the land. Some believe that this is a depraved pagan worship. Others see this as a futile attempt to drive out the demons. He said, I see this as a failed attempt to end his pain and suffering through suicide, running about wild, naked, and unkempt. He was... He was now a mere shell of cuts and bruises and lacerations and scabs and infected tissue. He tried again and again to end his miserable, unbearable existence and death. This was the agenda of the demon inside of him. Make no mistake, Satan's aim is to destroy because he is full of hatred. And this is a picture, a very real picture of that. But I also want you to notice is the enemy is very powerful too. Not only does he have the power to possess this man, he also has the power to completely alter his life and cause him to hurt himself and cause him to, to run away from his family and cause him to live among the tombs. And he is powerful enough to give this man superhuman strength because he could not be held down. He could not be subdued. Not even, even shackles or chains. In fact, he, his strength, he was so strong that he was strong enough to wrench the chains apart and break the shackles to pieces. This is incredible strength by all measures. Our, harm, our enemy is not a harmless figment of our imagination. He's not some little harmless sprite. He's a very powerful and real foe who means to harm us. Mark continues and says, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him which really is the right way to translate that. Because, because that's what's being communicated here. This man falling on his knees right, in submission before Christ. Now, the King James Version, as much as we love it, says that he worshipped Christ. That is incorrect. That's an incorrect rendering of the Greek. That's an error in translation. Right? This was not worship. Right? He was not worshipping. Hear me on this. This is not worship. This is submission. And there is a difference between the two. You can be submitted to someone's authority, but still not respect them. You can be forced to obey someone and still hate their guts. Right? We all, even as humans, kind of understand that. If you had a job, I think you might have 
can, can understand that. Right? This demon is not worshiping Jesus out of love and awe and adoration and reverence for him and who he is. This demon falls at his knees because he has no choice but to submit to the Son of God. Right? In fact, notice what he says. Right? It says, And crying in a loud voice, screaming, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God not to torment me. For he was saying, Come out of him, you unclean spirit. The demon submitted to Christ because he knew who he was. He plainly, as we talked about before, had a clear theological understanding of who Jesus is. And he called him the Son of the Most High God. And, and as such, he was compelled to submit to his authority. He was bound to obey. And again, I want you to notice his reaction here. He is not, he is not in awe and adoration. He is terrified. He is scared. He is screaming in terror. And he says, what do you have to do with me, some of the most high God? Now, that expression in Greek really misses the heart of the point. What, it, what he's literally saying is, right, why are you bothering me, right? Why don't you leave me alone is really the force of what he's saying here. And then he says, but I adjure you by God not to torment me. Or in other words, he's saying, in the name of God, please, Jesus, don't torment me. In the name of God, please, don't, don't, don't torment me. Because he knew that Jesus coming means the end is near for Satan and his, his minions. And, and this creature is terrified and he begs Christ. He begs him not to torment him. Which, by the way, is really ironic. Because, because here's this demon. Night and day he's tormenting this man. Merciless, mercilessly, right? But then he begs Christ not to torment him. That's a classic bully for you. That's a classic bully. Picking on people, being mean to people, you know, being violent. And then once the tables are turned, then suddenly you become this weak, pathetic, you know, you know, loser, and you beg and plead for mercy. Kind of reminds me of the movie Tombstone. It's one of my favorite, by the way. I've quoted it before, I'll quote it again. Can't help myself. But it reminds me, if you remember, the, the character Ike Clanton. Like, like, this is what it reminds me of. Because okay? he's like all tough, and he's violent, and he's hateful, and he talks big, and he's intimidating people, and he's taking advantage of them, and he kills them. Right? He's not afraid to shoot somebody in the back. Right? But man, when the tables get turned, he becomes this pathetic little weakling. Like when, when him and, and Stilwell go to the, uh, the train station to ambush the Earp family, and then Wyatt shoots Stilwell, and he drops to his knees immediately in submission to Wyatt Earp. And he, what's he doing? He's begging, please, please, Wyatt, don't kill me. Right? It's the same picture here. It's the same pathetic picture. This demon is begging Jesus not to torment him like he's been tormenting this man. You need to understand that our enemy, our enemy is a coward. As powerful as he is, he is a coward. Willing to torment, willing to, to destroy, willing to defile and deface the image of God in man, but faced with the prospect of his own torment and his own destruction, he's a whiny, withering wimp. He's a classic, classic conniving coward. Saying to Jesus, in the name of God, please don't torment me. But notice he continues to beg Christ. And Jesus said to him, what is your name? 
And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him into the country. Now, now Luke, in, in his narrative, says that, that he begged Jesus not to send them into the abyss, which is the same idea of being sent out of the country, okay? which is the place where, where demons were to be confined for judgment. They didn't want to be sent out of the country because that's where they were going to go, is to the abyss. They were going to be held captive before judgment. And they're begging Jesus, please, just let us go free and not put us in bondage. And again, this is really ironic because you have the captor begging not to be a captive. You have the enslaver begging not to be enslaved. What a coward. And to make this worse, this is not one demon, but this is, this is many demons cowering before Christ. He said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Well, I don't know if you realize, but a Roman legion was 6,000 troops. 6,000 was, was a legion. Now, I don't know if it's literally there were 6,000 demons. Obviously, there was a lot because 2,000 pigs died that day, right? So, but, but, but it didn't matter, right? There was a lot of them. And in, 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 in any case, it doesn't matter anyway whether it was six or 6,000 or 6 million. All of them cowered before Almighty Christ. And they continued to beg Jesus. And it says, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, lest let, let us enter them. They were begging Jesus, these unclean spirits, right, to be sent into the unclean animals instead of being destroyed. It's actually kind of like humorous to, 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 to a Jewish audience, right? And so he gives them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the, and the herd, uh, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Now, this is the point of the story. It's kind of easy to get distracted, right? Uh, because this is kind of a strange turn of events, Right? I mean, these pigs running off in the sea and drowning. In fact, I've read this story many times in my Christian life, and I'm always kind of perplexed thinking, all right, what was the point of that? Like, I mean, how did that even help them? Like, like, right? I mean, why would you ask Jesus to send, us, get, send in the pigs and then turn right around and then, go, and then go kill yourself with the pigs? Right? That didn't make sense to me. Right? Well, what we need to realize is, is, is in the Greek we come to understand, this wasn't what the demons actually intended, intended right? They intended to inhabit the pigs so they could stay in the area that they had already established their demonic power so they can go and possess other people. And when they entered these pigs, right, the, the Greek gives the ideas that they literally, when they entered them, spooked the pigs. It startled them, it scared them, and they ran off in a panic off the cliff into the ocean and they perished. One commentary notes it this way, said, from a Jewish perspective, this scene is a joke, right? Unclean spirits and unclean animals are both wiped off the face of the earth in one fell swoop, and a hu but, but a human being is cleansed. Right? This is not at all what the demons had intended, but, but, but Jesus gave them permission to leave this man and enter the pigs, and the pigs and the demons were both destroyed, which ultimately points at the last thing we need to know about our enemy. Our enemy is still subject to the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. Our enemy is still bound to and subject to the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. They perished because it was His will that they perish. Notice, right, this, this, these demons bow in submission, right, because they have no choice. And then they beg Christ because they have no other alternative, right? 
They can't do what they want to do. They're bound to obey. And as much as they hate God, as much as they're His enemies, as much as they despise Him, they still have to obey. Notice, they can't even move on their own free will. They have to ask for permission. He is co- they're completely subject to the, to the authority of Jesus. This is a reminder of, of the scene in heaven in the book of Job where the devil wants to prove that Job doesn't really love God. And God allows the devil to take away his, Job's wealth, his family, and his health, but he doesn't allow the devil to kill him. The devil can only, cannot do anything outside of God's control. The enemy is still subject to God's sovereign authority. As evil as the devil is, as hateful as the devil is, as rebellious as, as, as the demons are, they still are subject to Christ's authority. And they still are subject to Christ's word. Because Christ is God, is sovereign. And yes, we're back here again. And the reason why, and I want you to hear me on this, the reason why you don't have to fear this enemy who absolutely is real and who hates you and is more powerful than you, the reason why you don't have to fear him is because Christ is sovereign and in control. There's nothing he can do to you that Christ can't protect you from. If you're part of God's family because you've repented and believed the gospel, you don't have to fear this enemy because because the one you're trusting in, the one that you're trusting and depending on, is completely sovereign and in control. You can trust in Christ to liberate us, liberate you from the enemy, and we can trust in Christ to liberate us from sin and even death one day because he's completely sovereign. Jesus is simply, by his word, sets this man free from this legion of demons. If he will do that for him, what more will he do for those who trust in him by faith? In verse 14, Mark continues and says, The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened, and they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and he was afraid. Excuse me, and they were afraid. And those who had, had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who, was, <clears throat> who, was, who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. In this scene, we're again confronted with the same theme that we have been seeing all along throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus once again performs an incredible miracle. The kingdom of heaven expands right, into enemy territory. Another person who is suffering gets set free from their suffering, and you have people who respond in one of two ways. They either accept him or they reject him. I mean, this man accepts Christ. And he wants to be with Jesus. But these other people, on the other hand, despite this supernatural, undeniable miracle being done, and despite this pitiful man being restored back to life, they wanted Jesus to leave. They were not moved by compassion and hope. They were moved by fear and greed. The fact is, the kingdom of God draws some people close and repels other people. Some people are going to be attracted to the message of Christ, and other people are going to be repelled by it. And the reason for that is the same reason why some people will believe and why other people will not believe. The reason is the same for why some people accept Christ and why other people reject Christ. 
And that reason ultimately is the same, which is the condition of their heart. These people rejected Christ and what he had done for this and what he had done for this man because their hearts were still hard. They were more concerned about their financial loss than this man being restored. They were more concerned about the loss of these animals than saving this man. In fact, they were, think about it, they were more willing to tolerate the presence of a legion of demons in their midst than the, the presence of the Son of God that sets captives free. Their hearts were hard. But this man, his heart was transformed. His heart was changed. And not only was he set free, but he believed and he wanted to follow Christ and go with him. His heart was changed. But notice what it says. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Now, when I first read this, this was kind of, this kind of surprised me, right? I was like, why wouldn't Jesus let him go? Like, this guy was saved. He wants to follow Jesus and go where he goes. I mean, I, I get that. I understand that. I wondered, like, what's, what's going on here? Is it because this guy wasn't really a believer? Is that what it is? That, like, maybe he was healed, but he really didn't believe? Like, we've seen in other places where Jesus healed somebody and they didn't actually, like, begin to follow him, right? Or was this guy, because of being demon-possessed and defiled, was he, was he damaged goods? Like, was he just too damaged to go into ministry? Because I'm going to tell you, like, if there's something that, that many churches believe is that people you know, who minister, you know, there's some people that believe that you need to live a near-perfect life and never, ever, ever make any big mistakes if you're going to minister the gospel. There are people that believe that. There are whole denominations that believe that, right? And, and they, will, they will start, like, cutting people out of, of the qualifications because of their past mistakes. They will not ordain people unless they have got saved at a very young age and went to Bible college and then, and then didn't do anything major wrong in their, in their lives. But that is not biblical. That's not biblical. And just look at the Apostle Paul, by the way. And, and, and also, that's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not denying him for that reason. Right? Jesus didn't let this man go because this man would do more good for the kingdom of God by staying behind. That's the reason why he left him. Because notice what Jesus said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. I want you to think about this and just kind of visualize this. This man was, was demon-possessed, running around the countryside naked, living in tombs, screaming and howling and, and being violent and cutting himself with, with, to shreds with rocks. Where was his family and his friends? They're probably the ones, initially, who tried to subdue him and hold him down. Remember Jesus, the story of Jesus, right? Like They thought he was crazy, and what did the family do when they thought you were crazy? They come and they take you by force, and they take you home, right? So they can help you. This man's family and friends probably had been the ones who tried to subdue him initially, but they, and they knew, right? They knew full well what was going on with him. They knew what was happening to him. They knew that he was living 
in a hopeless state. But now Jesus sets this man free and restores him completely and tells him to go home to his friends and his family because of the power of a changed life. There's great power in a life that's been transformed. He said, go tell them what the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And imagine what that would have looked like when this man went home to those who knew him and saw this radically transformed life. How they would have reacted when this broken man came home whole again. And I think that we've all had a, a sense of that or experienced a little bit of that. We, we, we know people who have been deeply broken and in, enslaved who then, by the grace of God, have been restored back to life. In fact, this is the picture of my own little brother. If you remember some of my story, my own little brother was, was addicted to meth in a bad way, nearly at death's door. He was but a shadow of the man that he used to be. In fact, he was a walking skeleton with skin draped over, over his skin. He had sores and wounds all over his body. And he was a pathetic version of who he used to be. And he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's set free. And his life is transformed. He is a new creation. There is great power in a transformed life. Because a transformed life is the evidence that God is at work. But I want you to also notice that this man, he didn't just go to just his family and his friends. He went to the entire Decapolis, sowing the seed of God's goodness everywhere he went. Jesus didn't, didn't just let him go with him because he's damaged goods, but because, because his life is his living testimony of God's mercy and kindness. And as such, he would be an effective witness in his own part of the world, bringing hope to the hopeless. Brothers and sisters, that's our whole story, all of us. Now, as great a story as this is, it should be something that inspires hope in all of us. But there's a couple of lessons I think that we need to take, that we need to learn from this, from this text. And the first one I think is, is we need to realize that the enemy is real and powerful, and we shouldn't take that lightly. Again, we live in, a, in an anti-supernatural culture, and it's kind of easy for us to kind of like, eh, like, it's not a big deal. One of the things I've noticed is many Christians will joke about the devil as if he's some myth or some harmless little sprite. Right? I've heard people mock the devil and call him out. I've even heard people who, who, have, who have very immature people, right, because they heard somebody else do it. I've heard people, you know, hollering orders at the devil like the devil's going to listen to them. Right? I rebuke you. I bind you away from my business. And I rebind you away from my money. As if the devil has to listen to us. Let's be very clear. We've been on earth for less than 100 years. It might feel like longer, but it's not been. Okay? And some of us have been here less than that. He's been here since the beginning. Right? And, and he, is, he was crafty enough to get Adam to fall into sin and take all of humanity with him. And he was sneaky enough to cause David to commit adultery and murder. And he was persistent enough to cause the entire nation of Israel to turn away from God and worship false idols. And he has been powerful enough to cause our own beloved country to turn away from and abandon its biblical roots and now chase after secular humanism. You don't believe me? Just look around. 
Please understand, the real enemy is real, and he is powerful, and on our own, we're no match for him. On our own, we're no match for him. He's smarter than you. He knows more than you. He's, no, he's more powerful than you. Make no mistake, lest, lest you walk and be ignorant of this. Your only hope and your protection is from Christ himself. Right? It is in him that you trust. It is in him you lean. It is in him you depend. It is his power that you depend on. Understanding that Christ is the one who is sovereign right? and the only one that can keep you safe from him. Secondly, this man's condition is a picture of two very important spiritual realities. First, it's a picture of how hopeless we are without Christ. Because that's what we are without Jesus. Without Jesus, we're enslaved and hopeless. Without Jesus, right, we are slaves. Now, we might not be possessed by, by demons, but we're just as captive without Christ. Because all of us were born a slave to sin. We were by nature enemies of God, enslaved to the power of sin in our lives. In fact, that's exactly why an unchanged heart will not seek for God. It's not that the choice isn't there. It's the fact that our will is enslaved to our sin nature. We're born enslaved to the enemy, hopeless to free ourselves. We could no more free ourselves from the bondage of sin than this man could, could free himself from, from the clutches of of the, this demon. And, 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 and we are, because of that, without Christ, bound to suffer torment and guilt and shame. And without Christ, we will look for relief wherever we can find it. Some people turn to material things and stuff. Other people turn to substances like alcohol and drugs to numb the pain. Other people turn to deviant sexual behavior. Other people throw themselves into relationships, and yet still others will even give up and turn to suicide so they can find an end to their pain and their misery. But Christ, by the grace of God, set us free. He changes our hearts and transformed our lives and gives us a new nature, and we become free from the enemy and his power, and we become free from the power of sin itself. We can become free of our addictions. We can become free to have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Christ sets us free and gives us a new, new hope. And so this man is a picture of life, the life of hopelessness of those who do not have Christ. And it's also a foreshadowing of the future for those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel. Those that, that refuse Christ, who refuse to believe in him, will know a level of suffering that will make what this man went through look like a Sunday picnic. And I'm not... I'm not understating that or overstating that. Because there will absolutely be no hope. There will be no relief, and there will not even be the prospect of your suffering ending through suicide because it will never, ever, 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 ever end. We're talking for eternity. And though you will at that time will not be possessed by demons or the devil, because guess what? They will be suffering right along with you. Without Christ, we will cry in anguish and in pain, and in agony that will never end. That's what awaits those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel because God's justice and wrath will be poured on them. This is man's life. Right? This, is this, this, this man's life is a picture of that torment. And that should break our hearts and cause us all the more to desire to share the hope of Christ with those around us. 
The last lesson I want to, I want to point out is, is the fact that the Christ is compassionate. It's easy in these stories to see God's awesome power, but let us not forget that he is compassionate. This man was about as vile as you can get. He was unclean in spirit. He was ceremonially unclean. He was, he was physically unclean, which meant that a Jewish man would have nothing to do with him, but, but Jesus does not leave this man in his misery. He heals him. And the thing that I want you to notice is that Jesus arrives on the shore and immediately he's met by this man and gets in a confrontation with him and he casts out the demon. And when this episode is over, he gets back into the boat to leave. Doesn't that strike you as strange? Right? He doesn't stay in the region. He doesn't go and visit the cities and do what he's been doing, which, which is to do miracles and, and cast out more demons and preach the gospel. He gets back in the boat to turn around and come back to the place where he just left from in Galilee. Why? Well, it tells us something really important here. That it was Christ's plan all along to save this one man. That was the purpose of the trip. Christ knew this man was hopelessly enslaved to these demons, and he ordained for this man to be rescued. Jesus, right, as, as he knew before, right, before he left Galilee, that there was going to be a storm on the way, he also knew what would awaited him on the other shore. He knew that there was someone in desperate need, and he went to save this one man. Because Jesus Christ is compassionate, and he is mighty to save. This is, this is a picture of the parable that Jesus tells of the shepherd going out after that one lost sheep. Christ is the very definition of compassion. Now, in this story, there's a lot that we could talk about. We could spend the next couple weeks unpacking more and more of the theology and the rich detail in this text. There's a lot of lessons to learn here. Um, but in light of that, you know, of what we unpack today, what do we do with this? What are the, how do we apply this to our lives? Well, I'd like to offer you four applications. And, and believe me, there's a lot more applications here. You can read this and find lots more. But there are four, I think, that would do all of us well if we'd apply to our lives. And the first application of this text is we need, to, we need to take to heart the fact that we need to stay close to Christ. Like if there's anything that you remember from this message, this is the one I think that you need to remember. We need to stay close to Jesus. We need to stay close to the shepherd because our enemy is very real and he is very powerful and he is smarter than you and he is more experienced than you. In fact, there's a reason why we are called sheep. Right? Not to take you down a peg, okay? But by comparison, we're, we're not all that bright. And we're prone to wander and get ourselves in trouble. We're prone to wander away. That's why we even sing it in the song, right? Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. We are sheep who need to be shepherded. And our safety lies in the proximity we have to the shepherd. We need to stay close to Christ. Which means... I know I sound like a broken record, but i got to tell you the same things again. Because how do you stay close to Christ? Time in prayer. Time in word. Time in worship. Time in fellowship. Time serving God. 
That's how you stay close to the shepherd. You make Jesus the very center of your entire universe, that he's the center of your entire life, that, that Christ is the identity that you bring to everything else, that Jesus is constantly on your mind. Jesus says, abide in me, and I'll abide in you. That's how we stay close to the shepherd. That's how we stay where it's safe. I promise you, the people that I know that fall deep headlong into sin, when I ask them the question and say, hey, so how's your time with the Lord? It's been pretty much non-existent. Like, there's not much time in the Word. Because something that happens in the time of the Word keeps you out of trouble. It's, it's, it's a natural law, right? So abide in Christ and stay next to Him. The second application we need is we need to love the unlovable. And church, I know this is the unpopular one. But this is the one we've got to embrace and take home and make our own. If we're going to be known for something, let us be known for this one, that we love the unlovable. If there was somebody that was hard to love, okay, I want you to think about this. If there was somebody that was going to be hard to be around, someone that was hard to love, it was this man. All right? Just imagine it. Demon-possessed. Nasty and dirty. Violent, bloody, right? A mess, hanging around dead bodies, and naked, okay? I mean, just, just throw naked out there, and that makes me not want to be close, right? Okay? I mean, that's enough to make anybody run away, okay? But Jesus came clear across the lake to help this man. We need to be like Jesus and go out of our way to love those who are hard to love. Love those who get under your skin. Love those who frustrate the daylights out of you. Love those who give you the heebie-jeebies. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And the third we need to apply is, is we need to value people more than stuff and animals. And you might think, well, that's just a weird application, but it's not a weird application at all. Think about these people. A man in their area roaming the countryside, terrorizing everyone, is healed, and he is found to be in his right mind, and these people are not at all concerned about his welfare. Instead, they're concerned about the loss of their stuff and their, their animals. They cared more about their stuff than they cared about him. And believe me, we're prone to do the same thing. Sometimes we value our pets over people. It's not a very popular thing to say in America, but that's, that's the truth. There's a, there was a study that said that 40% of people are more likely to save a pet than a human being if they're both like in danger and you can only save one. It's not how it's supposed to be, brothers and sisters. Because every human being, I want you to hear me on this, every human being is an image bearer of the living God, and as such, they have an intrinsic worth that makes them infinitely more valuable than anything and any animal. That is why abortion is particularly hateful as a crime. Because people murder unborn image bearers of God. Why? So they can have more stuff. So they don't have to face the difficulties of raising children. Because stuff is more important than a human life. In fact, our culture, what's funny is our culture, if you hurt an animal, they will call for your head to be put on a platter like John the Baptist. If you harm an animal. But they will celebrate a mother's right to murder her own child. Brothers and sisters, even the unborn have, are more valuable than stuff. 
and animals. Now the final application is to do exactly what Jesus said to do. Tell your friends and your family about how good the Lord has been to you and what he's done for you and how he has had mercy on you. John Piper, this, just this week, was actually commenting on this text. He said, um, the heart, he said, the heart of every Christian, this is the heart of the Christian, every Christian's testimony. God had mercy on me. And this is our invitation. Come and share in that mercy. Brothers and sisters, God has had mercy on you. Share it with the world. And those who have been delivered from from death to life, and those who have been set free from the shackles of sin, and those who have been welcomed by God and adopted in His family, we all ought to be just like this man and go out and share with everyone around us what God has done for us so they can marvel. Brothers and sisters, the enemy is very real. But we need not fear him because Jesus Christ died on the cross to set us free. And those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. Let us rejoice in that and let us go out and share the hope of that with other people so they can rejoice along with us. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I do thank you for your word. But I also thank you today, right now in this moment, that I have not encountered a man like this. Because Lord, I wouldn't know what to do. And I'll admit it, I'd struggle to love this man. But Lord, you show us a level of compassion that is beyond what we could imagine. And you inspire us to live in that compassion. And to also, Lord, to walk in faith, believing and trusting you're going to take care of us. And that we can walk boldly because we know that all the storms of our life can be overcome by you. And that, there, that the enemy cannot do anything to harm us, that there's not a weapon of the enemy that's devised against us that will prosper because of who you are. Father, urge all of our hearts to stand in proximity to the shepherd. Help us, Lord, to stay close to you, Lord, and inspire us, Lord God, by your example to love the unlovable and inspire us by this man's example to go out and share the hope of Jesus Christ with everyone we come in contact with. Father, raise up a church, Lord, that is sold out for your word and willing, Lord, to look foolish to the rest of the world. Father, your kingdom will repel some, and it will draw some close. Lord, let your will be done. Let us be sowers of seed unconcerned with that. Help us, Lord God, to walk in faith that we would continue to love this community and share Jesus with our community and the world. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.